Well, today we, we return, because we've been here before, several weeks ago, more than several weeks ago. We return to the first 12 verses of chapter 2 of this letter, 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to begin by reading all 12 verses, so this is part two, and then I will do a little review of what we have already covered to catch you up or as a reminder. After that, we will pick up where we left off last time, which was verse three. So, sound good? All right, follow along with me as we read from from God's word. Beginning in verse one, the apostle Paul wrote these words, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you, into his own kingdom and glory. So that's the uh, section of text that we reviewed last time or begin to to dive into that we'll continue to dive into this week and for some weeks to come. And so here's a little bit of review. Won't cover everything that we talked about last time, obviously. This section that I just read of 1 Thessalonians, it, it could be titled appropriately, a defense of Paul's gospel ministry to the Thessalonians or among the Thessalonians. So he's providing a defense of the gospel ministry, Paul and his team, of that ministry that took place among the Thessalonians. It continues to take place as Paul continued to plant churches and preach the gospel. One uh, commentator concerning that matter said this, in this paragraph, Paul is clearly on the defensive That's what's driving, that's what we believe is driving this paragraph. He's on the defensive. His detailed account of the ministry at Thessalonica is fully intelligible only on the supposition that Paul was vindicating his work 
and character against the attacks of local Jews and pagans. So that would be the unbelieving Jews, those that rejected Jesus as the Christ there in that community, and also the pagans who worshipped other gods. They were spreading these rumors about Paul and his team and his ministry, and so Paul is now addressing those. That is what most commentators believe is driving or drove this passage. Timothy, who had just returned from Thessalonica, we learn about that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, and again, this is assumed, had reported this idea that he reported. We know he returned and reported back to Paul, but specifically, what did he report? We assume that he reported that the opponents of the gospel were circulating slanderous charges against Paul and his work. In other words, Timothy came back from the work that had taken place there, gave Paul an update, and then Paul writes this letter. And so part of the writing of this letter includes what appears to be a defense. Against what? Against accusations that were being made that Timothy was made aware of when he went and checked in on the Thessalonians. Paul used the method here of simply letting the record speak for itself. So you saw that it maybe as we read the text, you'll see these repeated, repeated phrases. You know, Thessalonians, as you know, Thessalonians, you remember, you are witnesses, calling their attention to remember something that occurred among them. <clears throat> so Paul used the method of simply letting the record speak for itself. The facts were still fresh in the memory of the readers, in thus repeatedly asking them to recall what they witnessed. He was letting them judge in the evidence if the evidence fit in with the charges being made against them. You know what occurred. You know what happened, and Paul's calling their attention to it. You don't need to listen to these slanderous accusations and lies being made against us by those who oppose us because they oppose the gospel. They oppose God. They oppose Jesus Christ. So why was it important for Paul to make this defense? Again, this is all review. Well, there was a danger, potential danger, that the accusations might harm the faith of the Thessalonian Christians by undermining their confidence in the integrity of those who preach that gospel to them, of those missionaries. There was that possibility. As these slanderous reports were being circulated, they were uh, being circulated for that very reason, to keep others from believing the gospel and then to even challenge those who had believed the gospel. One writer says, One purpose of this letter was to refute certain false charges and slanderous insinuations being circulated in Thessalonica against the missionaries. That's Paul and his team. This campaign of slander was aimed at detaching the converts from their loyalty to the missionaries. For the Thessalonians to believe these charges would be fatal to the work of the gospel in Macedonia, that region. The charges had to be refuted, okay? So, one of the things then, as we consider this section, this defense of the gospel ministry there that Paul provides that took place in Thessalonica and continued to take place, and now Paul being in Corinth and continuing to preach the gospel there, one of the things that emerges as we look at this detailed account and defense is a model, or better yet, and I I think I should even just rename the sermon to this, but an exemplary model for gospel ministry. It's probably a, a good word to throw in there, meaning that we, we discover here, as we read this section, a model for gospel ministry that you and I should learn from and imitate as fellow disciples and disciple makers of Jesus Christ. So, 
to illustrate that or to compare that, it would be like a car company that maybe is falsely accused of making an inferior car. And so in order to defend the reality that they did not make an inferior car or defend those accusations, they begin to provide details, specific details of how that car was made and all the processes that took place and those that were behind the making of the car and their integrity and so on and so forth. And from that, from that defense, as we're listening to that, we see a model then for how to make an upright car or a good car or a car worthy of being driven. And so it's, it's that type of idea. And that's kind of what I'm drawing out from this text for us and applying to our lives. So last time, again, still reviewing, we looked at two details concerning this gospel ministry that we can learn from when we should learn from and imitate. First, in light of verse 2, which again reads this way, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, and that was because of their gospel work there, okay? So again, not shamefully treated because they were mean people or, that they, or they were criminals or, or just because people were randomly going after them for no particular reason. It was specifically related to the fact that they were making the gospel known. They were ambassadors for Jesus Christ, and because of that, they were suffering, and so they did suffer in Philippi. So, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, this is the city they were in prior to coming to Thessalonica. As you know, remember, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So what detail, what details did I draw from that section? Well, we learned that in order for us to make Jesus Christ known to this world, in order to faithfully do the work of gospel ministry, we, fellow followers of Christ and disciple makers of Christ, we need to be like Paul and his faithful co-workers were, willing to face and endure opposition in making the gospel known to others. If Paul and his team were not willing to do that, then Philippi would have been, well, even before that, but Philippi would have been the end. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have gone to Thessalonica and there did the very thing that got them into trouble in Philippi. They would have been done. There would have been no more churches planted. There would have been no more conversion. Christianity would have ceased to exist, potentially. It is only because people have been willing to continue to face opposition and endure it that the gospel continues to go on in a world that continues to be hostile to that gospel and those who proclaim it. So we too must be willing to face and endure opposition in making the gospel known. Which means, you might remember I talked about this last time, which means we must choose to be okay with the possibility of not being liked, at minimum, <laughs> okay? I mean, for Paul and their team, we're talking about imprisonment, beatings, but at, and certainly they weren't liked, okay? But at minimum for us, I mean, we're talking minimum here, we must choose to be okay with not being liked if we're going to 
faithfully make the gospel known. We must choose to be okay with not being affirmed by people around us. Which means, it means we need to accept the fact that we, we might be hated. Who likes to be hated? Yeah, me either. Maybe even slandered. Who's in love with the idea of being slandered? False accusations being made against you. Who likes that? It means we must be willing to be uncomfortable. Maybe very uncomfortable. Maybe even suffer harm. We must be willing to do that. That's, that is the way that the gospel has gone forth. It's under those conditions. It's varied in degrees, depending on the culture and the times, but that has been the story from the beginning. And it continues to be so, and as I said to you before, it may continue to be more so for us who have lived for some time here in the States, in the United States of America, in a somewhat of a bubble, as we've talked about. But as you know, I think, those things seem to be changing and have been changing for some time. People are growing more and more hostile to the real gospel, to the true gospel. So, beloved, if we're not willing to be opposed, and I, and I, I said that none of those things come naturally to us, and then I mentioned that our culture that you and I live in can even make the realities of this gospel, of doing gospel ministry even more challenging for us, right? Do you remember? Because we live in a culture of affirmation. Our children, especially, because they're all growing up with phones and social media. And in that, seeking affirmation. The whole system is built on that whether it be Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. And so now I'm showing my lack of knowledge because that's all, that's all I know. There's probably more, I'm sure. Snapchat, I don't know. There's many more. But they all have this component of affirmation that drives them, honestly. That's what drives them. So so we're, our kids, we and our kids are growing up with this continual affirmation. And, 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 and again, I said, liking something or someone or affirming someone or something is not bad in and of itself. But there's a danger that we could become consumed by such things, that that becomes our way of life. Now the gospel comes in, and in order to make the gospel known, we have to face a situation where we will not be affirmed. We will be opposed, slandered, big thumbs down. We have to be willing. We have to be willing. Otherwise, the gospel does not go forth, beloved. But the second detail concerning gospel ministry that we should learn from and imitate, still review, is not to look within ourselves for the strength we're going to need 
and will continue to need to carry out the gospel ministry, but rather to focus in on God to find the boldness and courage we need to make the gospel known in spite of any opposition we might potentially face or end up actually facing. We need to look to God. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, here it is, we had boldness or courage is another way it's translated. We have boldness or courage in ourselves. No, that's not what it says. We had boldness or courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. You should, if you're a type that does this, you underline things in your Bible, this would be a good one to underline. We had boldness in our God. The New King James Bible translates it this way, we were bold in our God. In the midst of that potential conflict, in the midst of the conflict that broke forth as they begin to proclaim there in Thessalonica, they had boldness in their God. Now, this is kind of, this is where we, I told you I'd come back to this, and I want to come back to it for a moment. It's, It's nuanced, but it is different. It's not the same as saying boldness, it's not necessarily the same as saying boldness from our God. Okay, it's boldness in their God. Specifically, the idea is they had courage or they derived courage from knowing the God they were united to. I don't, I don't like one translation of, the, of the, this text, it's, uh, and I've used it before. It's the New International Reader's Version. It says, God gave us the boldness. That's not specifically what the text is saying. He's saying specifically, we had boldness in, in our God. So it's not as if they said, uh, God just magically uh, poured boldness into us, and all of a sudden, we were bold in sharing the gospel amidst much conflict there, and even though we just got beat down in Philippi and harmed, we stepped into this city and we went there and all of a sudden, woof, we got a dose of boldness from God and that's what made us able to stand and preach and proclaim in the face, in the midst of much opposition or trouble, okay? It's not that, it's boldness in God. So one writer puts it this way. This boldness of the missionaries was no mere natural attribute. It's not something they intrinsically had. Rather, boldness arose with their consciousness that their life had its sphere of existence in him, that is God, and all that happened to them was under his control, his sovereign reign, his sovereign rule, his sovereign power. That, knowing that, believing that, thinking on that, knowing the God to whom they were connected and for whom they were giving this message because it was the gospel of God that they were proclaiming, they had 
boldness. Another writer puts it this way, confidence in the power of God gave Paul and his team boldness, courage, tenacity, and fearlessness in the face of their enemies. So I was thinking about this, because I, I, I want you to just consider this a little more than just reading past, oh, they had boldness in God. But in what, how does that work? How does that work? Because I think sometimes we think, if I just, you know, okay, Jeremy, I'm afraid to, um, I'm fearful to make the gospel known. I'm fearful to talk to my coworkers about Jesus Christ. Okay, that's pretty natural, actually. That doesn't make you weird at all. Uh, I tried it before and it didn't go so well. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that does happen. And so I'm a little more hesitant. So are you saying that I should just um, pray and then ask God to grant me some boldness? Now, there's a sense in which I guess we could do that, but that's specifically not what Paul, I I think it's a little different. That's not what Paul is saying. So it's not like, well, because this is what happens. This is what I've seen people do. You know, I just didn't feel bold. I didn't feel so God hasn't granted it to me yet. So I'll just keep praying. And maybe at some point in my relationship with these people, I'll have the boldness to say something, to actually tell them about Jesus. And so this magic boldness doesn't come, so you never open your mouth. Paul is saying that their boldness came from knowing God and being in God, having a relationship with him. It was, and it made me think about our study that we just finished, this year-long study that we did. What was the title of that study? Behold Your God. What was, that, what was the whole point of that study? To know him, to behold him as he truly is, and then to believe those things and to act on them? Huh? And so from that lesson, this is one of the quotes. It says this, God has designed Christianity to work only when Christians walk in dependence upon and obedience toward him. Before I read that last line, God has designed the preaching of the gospel to work only when Christians walk in dependence upon and obedience toward him. To do this, To be obedient to God, to do what he has called us to do as Christians, we need to remember the character of our God. I'm going to tell you that's exactly, I think, the idea that Paul is communicating. We know who our God is, and because we know who he is, in him we had boldness to proclaim the gospel amidst much opposition, because we know God is good. We know God is sovereign. We know God is just and right, and God has declared to us to make this gospel known, despite the circumstances, despite what might occur, and we can trust him. If we end up in prison, we can trust him. If we are not affirmed, we can trust him. If we are beaten, we can trust him. He will work all things together for good. He will accomplish his purposes. 
Oh, I don't know if this person will ever repent, but I have boldness in God that he has the power to bring them to their knees and to cause them to repent and to turn and receive this gospel I'm speaking forth into their lives. I have boldness in God, not in my abilities, not that things will go well, not not in my strength. I'm weak, I'm afraid, I'm scared, but I think of my God. I remember what is true of him. And because of that, I have boldness. That's it, guys. That is it. That, I think, is the missing link. We don't don't think on him enough or we don't think of him rightly. Therefore, we lack courage, boldness. And by the way, courage and boldness is not the absence of fear. It's doing what you ought in spite of the fear. That's boldness. I mean, think about it, right? We wouldn't, if someone ran and, you know, did something courageous, we we honor it because it's a fearful thing that they did. It certainly is fearful, but they did it anyway. So don't, don't wait for the fear to, disappear (laughs) like all of a sudden god's just gonna zap you and then whoo all the fear's gone and now i'm look at me and i can speak and i'm not afraid no be afraid okay don't worry about it actually don't even think about the fear try not to okay rather stop looking at you and look to your god and find in him because you know the truth about him the boldness to proclaim. He's sovereign. He will work this out. He will accomplish his purposes. He will do it as you preach the gospel. And even if that means bad things for you, God is still sovereign over that. And he has promised not to let those bad things go to waste, but to even use that junk to conform you more to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It is a win-win for you. But you have to believe it. I have to believe it. So if anything, we need to repent of not believing it, of doubting the truth of who our God is. If anything, instead of praying for boldness, pray for greater faith to believe what is true about your God. Paul had great faith, and so did his team, and that faith Specifically, faith in God. It was the object of their faith that gave them the ability to do what they did. You know, William Carey, do you know who he is? You don't have to, you don't have to answer. If you don't know who he is, here's an assignment for you. Go home and, of all the things you Google, put him in there. In that long list of all the stuff we Google every week, right? Google William Carey. He's referred to as the father of modern missions. There is a famous quote that, he, that is repeated over and over again that he said. He said this, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Why would William Carey say this? And by the way, he did. And by the way, he went a really long time proclaiming the gospel with no converts. 
You got you to check out his story. But he was faithful, and he kept proclaiming it, even with all the pushback, even with all the lack of success from a worldly standpoint, because he was a successful man concerning the gospel ministry, because he was faithful to God in the face of opposition. But why would he say such a thing, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God? Why? Because he knew his God, beloved. He knew God was capable of great things, did great things, and would do great things through those who would simply trust him to do what he does. So that was a little review. Okay? Now we're going to look at verse 3. Verse Thessalonians 2, 3, Paul says this, For our appeal does not spring or come from error, spring or come from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Okay, so the word here, appeal, is used by Paul to speak in broad terms about his preaching of the gospel. It was in the preaching of the gospel that he and his team would urge or appeal to people to respond to God's salvation. Okay, so it's a, it's a broad way of referring to the preaching of the gospel. So in verse 3, since we understand this to be a section where Paul is defending his gospel ministry, here we see that he appears to be denying three allegations that were circulating about their gospel ministry, Paul and his team. So we're going to look at each one quickly, uh, beginning with the last one first. And then we're looking at these details and drawing information from them, things we should learn from and imitate. So the first one is, there was not any attempt to deceive. We're starting with the last one in the list. There was not any attempt to deceive. That word, Greek word translated deceive, it uh, signifies or did signify the catching of a fish with bait. The catching of a fish with bait. And so it came to mean any crafty method for deceiving or catching the unwary or naive, okay? So, you know, we have a common phrase we use, bait and switch. Same idea. So the fish thinks it's getting something, but it's not getting what it thinks it's getting. It's a deception. It's, in fact, getting hooked, uh, dead. So one writer says, Paul is denying that he and his co-workers here had resorted to, to manipulative methods to ensnare converts. Okay? He was not using any form or, or method of trickery to try to trick people into following Paul and, and trusting in this message uh, that he was preaching. I was thinking about an opposite, or someone who does use this type of deception would be false teachers of today who preach a a gospel that's not the true gospel, and then use false healings. They pretend that they are healing people. It's trickery. And people see that, and they attribute to that something divine, and then believe then that, that these messengers are from God and therefore worthy of their loyalty and also generally worthy of their money. Because normally those guys are also asking to, for monies to keep coming in 
and they, if they, they draw them in because they do these, this trickery, this deception of you know, having people supposedly be healed right there on their platform or get up out of their wheelchair, things of that nature. Okay? Paul says, we didn't use any deception of any kind. There was no deception, trickery. One writer puts it this way, there was nothing devious about their methods they made no attempt to induce conversions. He says, for example, either by concealing the cost of discipleship or by offering fraudulent blessings. And I was just thinking about that. You know, it'd be like someone, you know, come follow me, but then you, you, you use deceitful methods. Uh, if you do this, you'll have you know, overflowing. If you, if, you, if you put money into the plate, then you'll be returned a hundred times for every dollar. You'll get a hundred dollars. Some deceitful method or come to Jesus. You don't tell him the truth about what really discipleship and following Christ will be, which includes uh, persecution and suffering potentially for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus. But you, you give it a lot of fluff so that people will follow you and support you and so on and so forth, right? But and you do that because that's how you get the masses to, to follow you, to convert. But the reality is very few are converted to Christ. Few. Many go the way of destruction. It's few who find the way of life. And Paul knew that ultimately it wasn't a matter of his methods, but it was God in his sovereign purposes who would draw his children, his elect, his chosen unto himself, regardless of the cost of discipleship, regardless of all that, he will draw them, they will come. You didn't have to use deceptive methods or tricks of any sort because God would work through the preaching of the true and authentic gospel to draw his people unto himself. The whole thing was supernatural and Paul knew it. So it didn't need any trickery of men or deceitful schemes or ways to be successful. Yet, yet, that is what men do who are trying to um, trick you and deceive you and who do not have the truth. That's what they do. That's what they were doing in the first century. That's what they continue to do to this day. But Paul says there was none of that in our ministry. And, Paul could, and that was true because Paul knew the reality of what was going on. It wasn't a matter of Paul trying to trick people into the kingdom of God. It was a matter of God doing his work through the foolishness of the message that was preached. You got to remember that. So he didn't try to, you know, come on, you know, oh, see, look at this. We really are from God. He knew that ultimately God would bring those people in if they were just faithful to preach that very gospel message that God gave them to preach. They relied completely on God to save and transform those whom God had chosen to save through the message preached. So there should be no trickery of any sort or deception, no manipulative methods, no offering of fraudulent blessings in bringing the gospel into people's lives and sharing it and proclaiming it. We can be absolutely transparent. We can tell it as it is. We can say everything that is true about the gospel. We know that those who are perishing will count it foolishness. They will think it's ridiculous. And it won't matter what I do or say 
to somehow convert, it won't matter. But for those who are being saved, God is working supernaturally. They will count it as the power of God and they will be transformed and they will bow and receive Jesus Christ as Lord. So I can, I can say it as it is. I don't have to try to trick people into the kingdom of God. And you can't. You can't. But I don't need to try to do that. I just tell it as it is. Yes, the Son of God came, and yes, he took on flesh, and yes, he died on a cross 2,000 years ago. And I know the world thinks it's ridiculous, but yes, that's exactly what happened. And he calls you to repent of your sins, my friend, and to bow and put your faith and hope and trust in him. And if you do, whether you believe, if you do, I know it's a, it sounds outrageous, but it's so true. All of your sins, past, present, future, will be wiped away, slate wiped clean. And this Jesus, this historical one, this one who came from heaven, who came from heaven as the Son of God, the divine one, and took on flesh, this one, this perfect one, this sinless one. That's right, his birth wasn't natural. I tell it like it is. That's right, it was supernatural. I know what your colleges say. I get it, but I'm going to tell you as it is because I know ultimately if this person's going to be saved, God's going to have to do it, but he's going to do it through the message preached. So I preach it without any tricks, without any trickery. I preach it as it is. That's, that's what we're called to do faithfully. Yes, this one, this righteous one on that cross, not only does he wipe away your sins, but if you believe in him, he credits to you his very righteousness, his perfect life, the one you'll never have, that you might be justified before a holy God and enter into his righteous kingdom. And in that kingdom, oh my, all the blessings you can't even begin to imagine. We have some of them recorded in the scriptures, and they are glorious, but so much more. That's right. So we preach it. We don't need to use trickery, deception. That's what the world does to manipulate people. Next, Paul said our appeal does not spring from impurity. From impurity. So, there's no attempt to deceive. This is slanderous charges. That's what false teachers do. We are not false teachers. You know there was no attempt to deceive. We were transparent. We said it like it was. And there was certainly no impurity. Now, there's a difference of opinion among Bible scholars about what Paul was referring to when he uses this word impurity. Some think it refers to moral impurity. Specifically, sexual immorality or sinful sexual desire. There's reasons for that. That is often how the word is used in, rela in relation to that. That is certainly or was certainly a reality among false, some false teachers of that day. So it, would, it makes sense if, it's, if that is what Paul maybe is referring to, that they would, without getting into all the details, but that like other of the pagan religions, there was a, a component of sexual immorality involved. And so these false teachers would come and they would use trickery and deception, but also their motives for getting people to convert and follow them were in part due to their lust. And they would convince these male teachers, ladies, that they would need to uh, act immorally with them as part of their worship. You know, I don't think it's too hard for us to imagine such things because we see it 
in many cult leaders. If we think about some of the cults over the years, there seems to be always some disgusting and vile uh, sexual component. Uh, The female followers have to lie with the leader. And so you find out that really they're proclaiming what they're proclaiming and convincing people they're divine or that they should follow them for the purpose of sexual immorality. Now, it's possible that's what Paul means. I don't think it I don't think it's best to understand it that way in this particular context. I think rather it means impurity of spirit or sentiment. Impurity of spirit or sentiment. What does that mean? Well, it's like the NIV translates it this way. For the appeal we make does not spring, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 in the NIV. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. So the NIV uh, supplies that word motives, but it's, it's a trans, they're making an interpretation. The motives is not there. It's just the word impurity. But the question is, what type of impurity? I think that the idea is impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. So not specifically or specific sexual desires, but just impure motives in general. Other commentators, Bible commentators, in support of this idea or that view note that in classical Greek, so not biblical, just looking at classical Greek, that word used there for impurity, it denotes moral foulness, dirty ways of any sort. Uh, so it could just be generally that idea. Also, there's no hint anywhere else in the epistles that Paul was accused of necessarily flesh, like sexual immorality of that sort. So it just seems a little odd to bring it up here. Uh, it doesn't lie in the present context. There's nothing really being said about that accusation that he, was, that he and his team were accused of, of some immoral sexual desire of some sort. Uh, I think that the reference is rather just to impure motives, and he addresses that in verse 5 and 6, the desire to secure money from preaching. So that would be an impure motive. In other words, doing it for gain, for the gain of dollar, the almighty dollar, instead of doing it for the glory of God, or to gain honor from men in verse 6, looking for accolades and looking for a following so that they might honor you. We didn't do it for any of those purposes. Certainly, there were those and continue to be those who do it for that reason. They preach a message. They proclaim a message. They claim it to be from God, and they're looking specifically to gain financially from that, to gain a following so that they'll support them, or just to gain and gain honor and accolades and worship, really, from others claiming to be divine. So I think it's just um, impure motives, so their motives were pure. That's the, other, that's the detail we can draw from this. So no trickery was used, no deceitfulness in the preaching of this message. And in coming to you, there was nothing impure about our motives. So Paul is rejecting the claim that any impure or corrupt or foul or filthy motive lay at the foundation of their preaching or gospel message. Another way you could say it is their appeal and ours also should not spring from any selfish or self-serving reason. It, that's, if it's about that, you need to repent of that. The preaching of the gospel shouldn't be for some selfish or self-serving reason. Rather, the gospel ministry is done in service to God and for his glory and his honor. Okay? So finally, we have this last one. Paul says our appeal 
does not spring or come from air or, or out of air is another way to understand that. It doesn't, it doesn't spring or come from air or out of air. And this detail of the three is what I want to focus on primarily as we draw a detail from it that we should learn from and imitate. Error here, so again, just a couple of technical things. We're almost concluding, but here's a couple of technical things. This word, this Greek word translated error, it can be used, I'll explain this, it can be used in an active or passive, as an active or passive sense, okay? So in the active sense, it means the leading astray or deceit. In other words, if it's being used in the active, if we understand it that way, he means that this gospel wasn't intended to lead you astray, okay? That would be the active sense, or to deceive, okay? But in the passive sense, it would mean being led astray, or being an error, or delusion, or being, yeah, being deluded. So then in that sense, it would mean Paul is saying, I, this gospel did not come from a place of me being led astray, or from error, or from the fact that I'm delusional. And that is the way we should understand it here, in the passive sense, okay? It suits the context better, and it it keeps a distinction from the last thing he said, which is this didn't come from trickery, because then it would be redundant. So he's not saying, I didn't trick you, I didn't trick you, okay? He's saying this gospel does not come from the well of error, I am not deceived. I am not delusional. That's what he's saying. One writer says, Paul repudiates any contention that their preaching had its source in objective doctrinal error or delusion, that their message was the product of illusion or deception. In other words, of their deception. You get it? I'm not, that's not what's going on here. I haven't been deceived, you know? Mormonism should say that because it does come from that very place, from deception and illusion, from doctrinal error. The founder was deceived, okay? So they can't say that. But Paul is saying, no, we were not deceived. This is not from error. One writer goes on to say, it was one of Paul's fundamental convictions that in preaching the gospel, he was not the victim of a vast deception, he was unshakably convinced that his gospel was indeed the truth. Now listen, doubt on this point would have taken the heart out of the apostle and made him incapable of braving anything for its sake. You get it? If there were doubts in his mind to the authenticity to the truthfulness of his message preached, and now he's getting opposition and suffering for it, then how would he have had the heart to stand and continue to proclaim it? It was only because he believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that what he was professing and sharing was the absolute bona fide truth that it was indeed divine. It was the gospel of God, almighty God. And that empowered him to make it known. If this is a lie, if I'm confused, if I've just been seeing, saw visions that maybe weren't true, 
then why would I continue down this course? But I know what it is that I have been given to share. One writer, one uh, translation says, the appeal we make is based on truth. Truth. Beloved, faithful, so here's a Faithful gospel ministry requires a conviction of the truth of the message preached. It requires that. Why, listen, why would anyone believe to be true what you doubt to be true? Right? Why would they believe it? When people go, you know, you really get worked up. And I do, and there's different ways to get up here and do stuff. You don't have to get worked up like me, there's, but, and because some, you know, I just show it differently, okay? But every true preacher of the gospel, share of the gospel, they're worked up. They're wor- I show it the way I show it. They're worked up. I absolutely believe this is God's book. I absolutely believe these are God's words. I absolutely believe the gospel is true. Now you consider that for a second. Consider that statement. It's true. You, yes. And it says that there is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. That there's only one way to heaven. It is through faith and repentance in him, the one who died on the cross. And that it is through the preaching of this gospel that the world says it's foolish. That God mercifully draws sinners unto himself and saves them from the awful wrath to come. I believe that. I believe it. We must believe it. If we're going to be faithful to preach this gospel, then we must believe that it is true. It's not just another message, beloved. It's not just human wisdom. It's not a fabrication. It's not a lie. It's not deception. It is 100% bona fide truth. Every bit of it. Yeah, that... The one who hung on that cross, he took the sin of everyone who would ever believe. He took it upon himself. And he wiped it clean. And when they believe, they are justified before God. A holy God. And they can be justified no other way. So we preach it. And we keep preaching it. So in application of this, If you doubt it or begin to doubt it, you won't, you won't be willing to, you won't be, A, you won't be driven to make it known. B, you won't be willing to endure opposition for it. You won't. And there is a danger of doubt. There is, the, there is always a danger of doubt entering in because we live in a world and in a media-saturated environment that denies that very reality. We are constantly receiving from so many sources attacks against the, the truthfulness of this message, questions. Did God really say that? Did that? Is that really true? Do you really believe that? 
our higher places of education deny the truthfulness of this message that we preach. They deny the reality of a divine Jesus Christ. Movies, books, music, Facebook, denying, denying. So, beloved, be careful what you're choosing to take in. And observe continually. Be careful. Be cautious. Be aware, at least. Be aware that Satan is the god of this world and is continuing to push out everything that will challenge this very thing so that you may not be able to say the appeal I make is based on truth, I think. No. No. You know, we talk about Paul and all that he did and, wow, and his team, and these are the reasons. It was his, in part, his conviction about what he had. He had God's message. And he knew what it said, and he knew the truthfulness of it, and he believed it. I'm going to close there. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for the text, Father. We thank you for this opportunity that occurred, or the, the circumstances, Father, that occurred in Thessalonica. Really bad stuff, a, a slander, an attack on, on Paul and his team, those who went there to proclaim your message to the people that they might be saved, an attack on them, an attack on their message, all to undermine that message, all to hopefully, they hope, to turn people away. But Father, we are benefactors of that because Paul then had to respond to that, and in doing so, gave a very detailed account of the gospel ministry that occurred there. And, and we then, from 2,000 years removed now, viewing in are able to look at that and see what gospel ministry should indeed look like, what should drive it, how it should function. And so, Father, we're, we're grateful for that. We have this, this letter, and, and we're able to, to, to glean from that things that we should learn and that we should imitate, Father, and, Father, help us. Help us to do that. Help us to, to recognize we need to make a commitment. Um, we need to make a commitment to be willing to be opposed, to, to face opposition. We need to be okay with being made uncomfortable, with not being liked. That is the reality of making the gospel known to a world that is antagonistic against it. We need to make that decision not once, but over and over again. It's okay if I'm not liked. It's okay if I'm not affirmed. It's okay if I'm hated for the sake of the gospel. This is no small thing, Father. Help us to see it and realize it. It's okay. We don't need to be affirmed 24-7. 
And if we seek that, if we, if we demand that, then the gospel goes nowhere. Because when it is preached, it causes people to be upset. To hate. To slander. To speak evil of. To dislike. To not affirm. And to even harm. So we must be okay as those who, who contain this treasure. We must be okay with being opposed. And Father, we're terrified of such things most of the time so might we look to you might we seek to know you even better and in knowing you there and there only will we find the boldness and the courage that we will need to make this gospel known to our friends and to our families and to neighbors in spite of potential or real opposition may we look to you trust in you Your power, your sovereignty, your goodness, your wisdom. You're the one who gave it to us and told us to proclaim it, and you are wise. We must trust in that. And Father, in addition, may our methods and motives in sharing the gospel always be pure. Must we seek in these things to honor you, to deliver your message in the way you have said to deliver it for the reasons you have said to deliver it, no other. Father, we indeed need to be and remain fully convinced of the truthfulness of the divine origin of the message that you have given us to preach to this lost and dying world. Help us, Father, to make the most of the time that we have left on this earth. For your glory, for your honor, in making Jesus known. We pray it in his name. Amen.